Welcome to this episode of Portraits of Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Today's podcast, we have with us Maestro Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the symphony, and we have executive director Laurie Garvey. And we are talking about the March 6th concert featuring works by Haydn, Walker, and Beethoven. So Maestro, do you want to tell us a little bit about the concert and the program we can expect uh, coming up? Sure. We have a wonderful selection of music for this concert, three different types of works, uh, the first of which is by Franz Joseph Haydn. It's his Symphony Number no. 88 in G major. And it's it's actually, out of all his symphonies, one of my favorites. Um, Haydn, there are 104 numbered symphonies. That's a lot, if you think about it. 104. Yeah, it uh, Beethoven wrote nine. Brahms wrote four. And there, there are 104 that we know of that are numbered. There might be some others in, in addition to that. Um, and they weren't just, Haydn just didn't write number one, number two, and, and write the numbers. Those numbers were cataloged, put in later. And in fact, number 88 uh, had really seven different numbers to it at different times. It ended up being as number 88, I think, back in 1907. The piece was written in 1787, and it really took until 1907 until we had it numbered as we know it today. <laughs> uh, speaking of the numbering system, just for everyone listening, uh, some groups of the symphonies are, are or, or some symphonies are, are put into groups. For example, there's what's known as the Haydn London symphonies. And those are numbers 93 through 104. And uh, he actually wrote them at two different times. I think numbers 93 through 98 during his first visit to London. So that's why they're nicknamed London symphonies. Mm-hmm. And then he went back and uh, he wrote numbers 99 through 104 while he was in Vienna thinking about his second trip to London. And so uh, what's even more confusing than that is a lot of these symphonies have nicknames. And one of them, the very last one, number 104, is actually nicknamed London, the London Symphony. Oh, I see. So you have a group of symphonies, numbers 93 through 104, called the London Symphonies, and an actual symphony called London Symphony. So 104 is the London Symphony of the London Symphony. <laughs> uh, same with uh, Paris. There is a there are a group of uh, I think there's six symphonies, uh, numbers 82 through 87 that are nicknamed Paris symphonies. He wrote those for an orchestra uh, for a specific reason for the Paris symphonies. So that's 82 through 87 and 93 through 104. Now right in between there, 88 and 89, that's where we're at. Number 88 is in G major, and like I said, this is 1787. And uh, he wrote these uh, for one of the violinists in the orchestra for, for whom he, uh, Haydn's employer, his name is Esterhazy, the employer. And Prince Esterhazy had his own orchestra, and he employed Haydn to write music for this orchestra. Now, that's a pretty good gig at any time in history of music, is to be guaranteed a job. Uh, a, lot, a lot of composers uh, go through turmoil and difficult times, and Hyde did too, but as far as career and 
and the music making, uh, his was pretty pleasant uh, because it's always nice to get a paycheck for sure. And uh, one of the violinists in this orchestra at uh, at Esterhazy, his name was uh, Johann Peter Tost, a violinist, and he was going to go to Paris. And so he just happened to ask Haydn, uh, you know, I'd like to promote what we're doing and what you're doing. Could you write a symphony or two for me to take to Paris? Now, he had already written some Haydn, that is, already wrote some pieces, the Paris symphonies. So this is a separate ordeal. And uh, so he did write two symphonies. This is the first of the two, which is number 88, that Toast took. And at the time, the Parisian uh, audiences, were they really favored opera and other vocal music over purely instrumental music. Uh, but one exception did happen to be the symphonies of Haydn. And so uh, they were widely performed there. And actually, they were published there, too. Published. I think what's fascinating, every time we talk about any of the composers, and specifically in this case, these are working, you know, Haydn was a working musician, a working composer. These are yeah. not, uh, uh, they're regular guys trying to make a paycheck. And it was, it was, it was a job. I mean, it, it was, it's art, but also uh, a living for him too. That's not always the case, but it, for him it, it, it was. And uh, I don't think he was thinking of it as, I, you know, I'm, I'm painting the Mona Lisa or I'm doing these things. He was doing the best output he could, but it was of that quality. It was just that high art. Sure. Uh, that, that's just what, there are certain talents every once in a while that come across and, uh, and we just recognize him as that, Haydn, that is. Sure. Uh, now, this, this symphony is not a long symphony. It's about 22 or three minutes. And uh, so it's a little on the shorter side from some of his other symphonies. They, some of the other symphonies could go anywhere from 26, 7 minutes or to a little bit longer, 31 or 2 minutes or so. So this is a little bit on the shorter side, but it's very innovative. Uh, uh, there is a beautiful introduction in the uh, first movement. I think it's quite ex- exquisite. And um, the first movement, uh, you know, not to get too theoretical, but it's in sonata form, and, and a lot of musicians know what that means. It's just a set of rules that musicians would go by in writing. But what's unique is he breaks those rules. You know, you're told not to break rules. Right. But he does so in a way that makes it uh, – extra musical per se now some composers could break rules and it would not make sense and there are composers that 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 are not around today we don't listen to them because it didn't it didn't uh, stick right he was able to his you know these great composers all of them they were able to bend and break rules in a way that was innovative and and created emotions that that we understand that um really evolved into the creation of symphonic music as we know it. And we've, we've talked about this in previous episodes. Beethoven was one of those that, that broke the rules as well. And I'm sure you'll get to that. And he learned from Haydn. Haydn was uh, Beethoven's teacher. And Beethoven wouldn't be who we know know as today if he had not studied with Haydn. So he, he helped him with that. I didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, when I say break rules, every detail that he, did Haydn? It seems spontaneous. It's it's, it's very uh, it's as if it was supposed to be that way. So the second movement uh, is as a set of variations. 
and it's a very graceful theme. It uh, has a, a nice cello obligato part, which just means it's a special part for cello yeah, that, that begins this set of variations. And they play the theme, and um, it's in a slower uh, uh, largo or a slow movement feel. And then each variation, he changes something about it and, and articulates in a certain way that it changes the emotion each time you hear the theme. The third movement is a minuet, which is typical of, of symphonies at that time for the third movement to be. But what's different is, it's, to me, it sounds very rustic. Uh, it's, it's got a robust theme, and it has a bass drone in the trio section. A minuet has a minuet and a trio section. And this bass drone almost sounds like bagpipes to me, which, uh, which would be a no-no in writing of the time. If you don't want this, the, like a bagpipe would be right. like this, would not sound it would sound wrong, but it, it's he, he's he's having fun, which is what I like about sure. Haydn. And the last movement is a, a fast movement, very vibrant. It's uh, Mark's uh, finale is Allegro Conspirato, uh, and uh, so it moves. Uh, and what's interesting about this is there is um, each of the themes in both the first movement and this last movement, uh, the themes. Are, are marked in a way, usually downbeats are very important. The beginning of the bar are very important. And sometimes repeated notes are on downbeats. Well, he doesn't do that this way. He puts, he kind of flips it and puts it on the off, not as important beats. He puts repeated notes and it, it makes it sound like beat one is on beat two and vice versa. And, but it makes sense the way he does it. So it makes it playful. It makes it sound like you're not sure where you are, but it has a certain flow to it. Time. And that's what's great about Haydn. Uh, like I said, it's one of my favorite uh, works of all of his symphonies, and I'm glad we're able to do it for this concert. The uh, next work on the program is called Lyric for Strings, and it's by George Walker. And he may be a person you're not as familiar with as someone like, like Haydn, but we all should be. He was a wonderful composer and a fantastic pianist. For his time, he lived uh, from 1922 and died just uh, in 2018. So he's he a little more contemporary. Uh, contemporary yeah. might be the wrong word to use, but uh, well, he's more contemporary than Haydn for sure. sure. Yeah, uh, I, I would say you know 20th century composer for sure. But uh, he uh, had a remarkable career. He he won the Pulitzer Prize for music. He. Uh, he performed, like I said, he's a pianist, so he was a good enough pianist to be able to perform Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto with a major symphony orchestra at the age of 23. So uh, wow. that that piece in particular, Rachmaninoff's third, is considered by many, you know, the, one of the most difficult piano concertos to ever play. And so he was that good, that talented. Um, he was he's an African American, and he was the first African. American to uh, uh, receive a doctorate from the Eastman School of Music. That's a big deal. Uh, he was the first uh, African-American instrumentalist, not just pianist, instrumentalist to appear as a soloist with the Philadelphia Orchestra. That's a big deal. And, uh, of course, I mentioned the uh, Pulitzer Prize for Music. So sure. his, his accomplishments, uh, not just as a pioneer for black musicians, just as a musician, 
deserves to be known just in its own right. That's how important I think he is. Um, since uh, when he did live, of course, he had to deal with uh, the sufferings of racism. I, you know, I would equate it to this. Uh, we all know Jackie Robinson and what he had to go through in baseball. Right. He was doing this thing, same thing as a soloist on the solo circuit, going from orchestra to orchestra and performing, having to do deal with the same terrible situations that Jackie Robinson or a lot of people at the time did. And it, it, we have to remember that, too, yeah, and for him to stand up for himself and, and, and perform music in that, in that, under those conditions. I, I can't imagine. So uh, for him, the music was that important to him to be able to do that. I think that's a big deal. And a great representation of, of America and the African-American culture. Absolutely. Yes. Um, he attended uh, the Curtis Institute of Music as, uh, also, and his, uh, uh, he had several teachers uh, that helped him learn to compose, and some of the same teachers that taught Samuel Barber, who we do know, a uh, wonderful composer. And they knew each other, and Minotti, Carlo Minotti, of course, uh, Giancarlo Minotti. Um, so this piece is called Lyric for Strings. It's not a long work. It's a shorter work, about six, six and a half minutes or so. And it really demonstrates uh, Walker's gift for uh, uh, crafting a, a beautiful melodic line. Uh, it's an earlier work. Uh, I mentioned he was 23 when he soloed with a major orchestra. He was also, this is a good year for him, uh, 1946, because he, it was the same year he wrote this piece. It actually comes from uh, his string quartet number one. It's the slow movement of his string quartet. And it was dedicated to his grandmother, who had recently died. So this was in honor of her. And um, he liked this movement so much out of this quartet that he made it a separate work for a full-string orchestra. And he first uh, titled it Lament, but he decided uh, it, he decided to change it and make it called uh, Lyric for Strings. And uh, I think it's probably become one of his best-known works and one of his most performed work in, in the, the repertoire. Um, it's, the music is quite serene, uh, the melodies are, and it's uh, very skillfully imitated throughout the inner voices. And, and, that, and because of that, it it's, uh, creates a rich, a rich texture where you can hear multiple voices that intertwine with each other. Um, it, it builds to, of course, to climaxes. There's certain climaxes. Uh, uh, and some and controversial uh, places in it that creates tension, uh, but then ends uh, with the serene mood again uh, that from the opening it returns to that. Some people like to say, and I mentioned Barber before, and because of the same situation with Barber, his famous adagio for strings that we all know right. came from his quartet too. So there's some similarities in that regard. One was influenced um, by the other? Is that what it, you would say? It, well, some people say he might have been influenced by that. They both did attend Curtis, and uh, you know, whatever that influence might have been, I still think Lyric for Strings stands on its uh, own as, as a masterpiece. Sure. So we're really happy to be playing uh, this work. And then the final work on the program is by Beethoven, uh, and it's his uh, first piano concerto, piano concerto number one in C major. 
And our soloist uh, is the winner of the Ann and Charles Eisman International Young Artist Competition. His name is Solomon G. And uh, I thought it'd be a good time now to have our executive director, Laurie Garvey, talk a little bit about the competition. Yeah, Laurie, how was the winner selected? So um, every year we have the Ann and Charles Eisman International Young Artist Competition. And uh, it's a competition for piano and strings, and they alternate years. So this year it was a competition for piano. And the competitors sent in their applications and performances in November. Um, We had 14 competitors and a preliminary round of judging took place and eight semifinalists were selected. Those semifinalists traveled to Richardson, Texas in January, second weekend of January. And the competition took place at the Eisman Center for Performing Arts in Richardson, And our judges this year were virtual. We had Joyce Yang and John Nakamatsu, who were fabulous judges. And the competition was streamed to them so that they could see everything as it was happening. Hmm. And so throughout the day, we had eight competitors and they, the, uh, our judges selected three finalists. The, each of the finalists performed his or her entire concerto. And then another round of judging took place and the first, second and third place winners were selected. So um, it was a very, very competitive year. Um, Every year, it's just amazing the level of talent that this competition attracts. And it's just exciting to see these students. Um, They range in age from 13 to 27. Uh, This year, the winner, Solomon G, he is 17 years old. Wow. Yes, he's from San Francisco, and um, he's just fabulous. And and it's really, I think we've we've talked about this before in previous episodes. It it's called the International Young Artist Competition because there is such a wide variety of talent um, represented from all over. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Um, we usually have competitors from Canada or Europe or Asia. This year, everyone was from the United States, which is unusual. Sure. But yes, it is a, it's a wonderful competition, and we're very grateful to Anne and Charles Eisman for sponsoring this competition. Their generosity enables us to continue this competition. And it's been going on now for about 35 years. They took over the sponsorship six years ago, so we're very grateful to them for their support and generosity. And what a great way to debut new, young, talented artists. And I might add that uh, these uh, competitors do come from all over the world and in different ways. They'll either come from, you know, outside of America, but sometimes these students are in school studying at a conservatory or a university in America. Right, good And point. they take advantage, of course, and as we all would, while we're in America, uh, uh, coming to uh, Richardson for this competition. So they might be at the Manhattan School of Music, even though they're from Germany or from right. uh, Korea or wherever. Right. And so that's how we get a lot of international uh, students. Um, so this year's winner was Solomon G. And he is a student of Yoshikazu Nagai. And our second place winner was Angie Zhang, who attends the University of Michigan. And our third place winner was Matthew Fiegel from the Eastman School of Music. So um, it was a, 
just a fabulous competition. It's always such a joy to hear the students performing. I don't know how the judges make the decisions every year. I was just going to mention, you know, Solomon, as Laurie said, uh, studied with my guy. That's at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, or he's a professor there. And uh, Solomon has performed with several different orchestras already at, at the young age of 17. Uh, the Minnesota Orchestra, the Peninsula Symphony, uh, the California Youth Symphony. And uh, he has been invited to join the San Jose Youth Symphony on tour to, to Europe uh, this summer. So he, it's quite a lot under his belt already. At 17? Yes. Laurie, is the concert going to be live streamed? Yes, we are live streaming this concert again. We have been partnering with Grace Point Media throughout the season to be able to provide concert viewing to everyone, whether they choose to attend in person or not. Um, It's been a wonderful opportunity to bring our performances to a broader audience. So yes, it will be live streamed and tickets for the live stream sell for $30. Very good. You know, we were talking about numbering of symphonies with Haydn. Uh, this Beethoven piano concerto, uh, there are five numbered piano concertos for solo piano and orchestra uh, of Beethoven. I say that because there's also a concerto called the Triple Concerto for violin, cello, and piano. Right. Uh, but the numbering of these are all uh, number two, which is in B-flat, he actually wrote before number one. But when it was published, the publisher, uh, Breitkopf and Hirtel, uh I believe it was Breitkopf, I don't quote me on that, but uh, the publisher, let's say that, put the C major, the one we're doing, as number one, even though that was written in 1795, and number two was, I believe, 1793 or so, a couple of years before. Uh, he actually wrote, uh, speaking of a young uh, Beethoven, I think at the age of 14 or so, he had written an, another piano concerto in E-flat major that was never really uh, uh, published, or it was, it was while he was a teenager and young and just wrote whatever he wanted to write and uh, never made it to a publisher. But it, it was just showing he wrote at a very young age. Sure. Uh, this this is a wonderful piece. It's about 35 minutes or so, and he Beethoven, as with most of his piano concertos, wrote out cadenzas that uh, a lot of times before that, a soloist would play a cadenza on their own they would write they would improvise it or write it out and act like it was improvised uh beethoven was a little more specific and said here is a cadenza that i like that i'm composing for you and most people do use those cadenzas throughout history the way performance practice works there might have been some periods of time where uh soloists won't use that cadenza and just again write their own or uh other or other famous soloists would have their own cadenzas and people would steal or use those as their cadenzas. <laughs> uh, that's just the nature of the beast of, right. the, of performing. Right. Uh, but in this case, uh, Beethoven wrote uh, cadenzas and Solomon will, will be playing those cadenzas. It's in three movements. And the first movement has a, uh, I would call it a knocking motive uh, theme. It has a half note and two quarter notes. So, bang. Like someone knocking at the door, bop, 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 and uh, it's very bold and assertive, uh, youthful sounding. Uh, he, uh, like I said, it was 1795, so that would have made Beethoven uh, 1770. That would have made him 25 years old, so pretty, pretty young. 
And it was younger than he wrote his first symphony, which was five years later. And uh, he really plays around with this theme. It's it's very beautiful. Uh, the second movement's an A, a flat, and it's a slow slower movement. And the the orchestra or the orchestration, uh, he removes the trumpets and drums, which was in middle movements uh, a little more standard. Incidentally, back to the Haydn. Like I said, the composers would take out those bright sounding and percussive instruments, instrumentation. Haydn did the opposite. In that first movement of the Haydn, you don't hear trumpets in symphony. You hear it in the second movement. That's how innovative, very different, very different. You would never do that. But only Haydn could get away with it. But back to Beethoven, of course, uh, he does take it out in the second movement and it makes it very, uh, uh, Beautiful and serene and has a nice flow to it. There are drops of solos from the flutes and oboes and uh, the, the strings back them up. And of course, the soloist is there. And then the last movement is a finale. It's a rondo. Rondo means in a form of A, B, A, C, A, B, A. So it alternates. There's an right. A theme then a B. The right. A will come back. Then the C is different from A and B. And then the A, the A usually comes back in each time. It's very lighthearted, very whimsical. It's uh, marked Allegro Scherzando. Scherzando in this sense means playful, very playful. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful way to end the concert. So uh, it's it's a it's a great way to end the concert. The whole concert itself, uh, the varieties of everything that we're going to play. Sounds like a wonderful program. Before we go, I want to thank our podcast sponsors, the Ray Charitable Trust. Frost Bank, and Humanities Texas. Thank you for joining us today, everyone. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center Ticket Office and on their website at eismancenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Catorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time, 